right, well, good morning, Northwest Community Church. My name is Jerry, one of the pastors here, and it is my pleasure to open up God's Word with you here this morning. Um, I can't tell you how excited I am about this new series that we're kicking off here this morning. If you are visiting with us, this is a great Sunday to be here. Uh, my job here this morning is to kind of provide a little bit of a backdrop for this next series that's going to last five weeks that's called Follow. And basically, we're going to be diving into the world of Jesus and how he dealt with his disciples and what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. You can see here on our logo, on our graphic uh, for this Follow series, uh, we've kind of gone off a little bit of the Instagram type of theme. And you can see up there at the top, you've got the button if you want to follow. Um, Jesus, just as a joke, obviously. But notice followers, 2.2 billion. And worldwide, that is the estimate that of all the, you know, approximately 7 billion people in the world, 2.2 of them would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's almost one in three, all right? Not just people in the United States, which is considered a largely Christian nation, but we're talking about the world now. Approximately one in three people in the world would say, yep, count me in. I would call myself a Christian. And I don't know if that's shocking to you or not. When we look at the world and we see all the pervasive evil and we see our culture and we see how things in many ways are getting worse and worse and worse. And yet one third of the people would say, oh no, I'm a follower of Jesus. Somehow our definition of somebody who follows Jesus or our definition of somebody that's a disciple of Jesus or really our definition of what it means to be a Christian has changed over the centuries and over the millennia since Jesus walked on the face of the earth. But it's vitally important for us this morning to get a good understanding of what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. As a matter of fact, in the book of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we get Jesus' perspective on what it means to be a follower. And here he was right at the moment where he was about ready to leave his disciples, and he gave this final command to them. It's called the Great Commission, the Great Word of Instruction, uh, right before he left. It's super important. It says this, Jesus came and he said to them, that is the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So clearly, Jesus is saying, okay, you've seen what it looks like to follow me. You've lived with me. I've taught you a lot of things. Now your job is to go and to make additional disciples. Just in the way that I modeled for you, I want you to go ahead and do that and multiply this movement, create more and more followers. That was the command, go and make disciples. That begs the question here for us as a church here this morning. Are we doing that? Are we teaching? Are we baptizing? Are we making additional disciples that make disciples that make disciples? Or are we content just to be a casual fan of Jesus? 
There's a big difference between somebody who's just a casual fan versus somebody that is fully devoted and a follower, right? I saw something on my Facebook feed this week that kind of was making fun of some of the Carolina Panthers fans. Any of those here today? Raise your hand up really high like you're proud. Oh, there's not very many hands going up. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because they are not having such a great year, right? And it was basically an epitaph that said Carolina Panthers bandwagon 2015 to 2016. That's all it lasted, right? Because this year they're not so good. Casual fans are only excited and only like that particular cause when things are going well. They want to align themselves with that when things are going great. And then you compare that to maybe some of you who stayed up last night and watched the Chicago Cubs enter in to the World Series for the first time since the 40s. Right now, if there's anybody that's had a bunch of followers dedicated heartbroken people that say we don't care we love our team it's Cubs fans right yeah they haven't won since what 1908 and so here we are over a hundred years and finally they're in the World Series for the first time in 60 70 years and so let's hope for the best for them but we know the difference between people that love and are dedicated and are followers through the good times and through the bad times. It makes the good times that much sweeter when you follow them for so long versus the ones who are just casual fans. And if they're doing well and if they make me feel good and if I can align myself with something good and great, man, I'll throw on that Panthers jersey and pound on. That's the difference between just being a fan and truly being a follower. And unfortunately, we could say in our world, 2.2 billion, who knows? God's the one that really searches the heart. But man, Jesus has apparently got a lot of fans. There's a lot of people that like Jesus. Oh yeah, I'll be dedicated and I'll call myself a Christian when I get an award. Or man, certainly when some tragedy happens in my life, Jesus, you know, uh, you're the one that can do this. And please, now I'll find the time to pray to you and ask you of something when it benefits me or when I'm in a crisis. But beyond that, you don't see a whole lot of followers, at least not in the same vein that we see here in Scripture from 2,000 years ago. I wanted to come up with a quick little definition that you could remember for these next five weeks. A disciple, very simply, is someone that looks like Jesus. Somebody that looks like him. And taking it a little bit further, we need to understand that a disciple is not just a pupil. And I think that's where a lot of people get it wrong. They're like, oh, when I think of a disciple, I think of somebody who just sits there and he's just a learner and he's just gathering information. But a true disciple, as we're going to see here from the context of Scripture, is not somebody who is just a learner and just gathers information. It's somebody who is a doer and who is spurned on and passionate about imitating his rabbi. And unfortunately, in our church context and even in our world context, there's a whole lot of people that know a lot of information. They're learners. They've maybe been in church a long time and they can maybe perhaps know a lot about this book. But their lives don't look like Jesus. They may like Jesus, but they don't look like him. And that's a super important distinction that we need to make here this morning as we dive 
in. Let's just go ahead and if you're taking notes here this morning, basically want to answer one question for us. How do you become a disciple? What did that look like 2,000 years ago? And what does that look like today? Now this morning's message is going to be filled with a lot of history and a lot of context. And I'm going to do my best to present it to you in a way that's interesting because it's unbelievably interesting. And some of you maybe will have to just wade through it with me here momentarily as we talk about what things looked like back then. But if you follow me in it and stick with me, I promise it's going to have unbelievable ramifications for us 2,000 years later. And I need to tell you that I am hugely indebted to a guy named Ray Vanderland. He uh, works with Focus on the Family. He's an expert in Jewish culture. And I would encourage you that, man, if you want to know more about this, there is unbelievable videos and audio. And I've listened to hours and hours of some of his lectures and some of his teaching about Jesus as the Jewish rabbi and what that looked like. And I would encourage you to uh, check out more of his information that the world may know is the name of his organization, Ray Vanderland. Absolutely fantastic. My mind is blown over this last month as I've really been diving in in preparation for this idea of presenting to you, our people, a true nature of what a disciple is. Well, to start things out, we begin in a town called Galilee. And Galilee was an absolute hotbed for religious thoughts and for rabbis and rabbinical schools and rabbinical ways of learning. When we talk about the question, how do you become a disciple, the rabbinical way is quite simply, they earned it. They earned it. Now, we all know if you want uh, to know a certain thing or if you feel like you want to go in a certain direction, there are certain cities that are going to be more likely for you to get in that direction, right? And to get into that trade and that profession. If, for example, you love acting and you love that whole idea of movies and acting and plays, where are you going to go? Probably going to go to Hollywood, right? Maybe New York City. If you're really into politics, if you're really into government, obviously you're going to go to Washington, D.C. If you're a musician, if you're into sound and engineering and production and all that sort of thing, where are you going to go? Nashville, right? And if you're interested in the very best athletic program and the very best academic university, where are you going to go? You're going to go to UNC, of course. Did I say that out loud? I did not mean to. I'm sorry. I've got no dog in the fight, so I take it all back. But anyway, we understand that. And back then it was like, man, if you wanted to follow a rabbi, if you wanted to be steeped in religious thought, you would go to Galilee. That's where many of the disciples were from. That's where Jesus came down and that's where he began his ministry in Galilee. As a matter of fact, even though it was just a fishing village of a couple thousand people, it was the absolute mecca of religious learning, even more so than Jerusalem, even more so than Judea. There was a heated debate at that time, uh, in the time of Jesus, amongst the rabbis and amongst the people of the nation of Israel, and the heated debate was, at what age, how early can you start a child learning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they actually began teaching this intensely at five years old. 
Josephus, who was a first century historian, was quoted as saying, above all else in our culture, he was Jewish, above all else, he said, we pride ourselves in the education of our children. They didn't pride themselves in athletics or whether or not they were a good artist or any other thing. It was the education of Scripture deep into their minds. Why? They knew as Jewish people, if the text didn't make it deep into the bones of their children, they were one generation away from losing it all. And that's a little bit of a wake-up call to us here in America, right? When we think about our religious system and when we think about for many who call themselves followers of Jesus, perhaps the different focus that has been handed down to us in comparison to what it looked like for them. So if you were growing up in Galilee in this hotbed for religious thought, I want to go over with you quickly the three levels of schooling that they went through. And this is important because, again, this is if you want to be a disciple of a rabbi, here's what you had to do. The first one is called Bet Safar, and it means house of the book. And this is from age 5 to approximately age 12. And when it says house of the book... It's talking about the law, the first five books of the Bible. And it wasn't just, oh, let's teach you stories like we do, which is great. But it's no, not only that, but we are going to teach you how to memorize Scripture. History tells us on the first day of school, five years old, the teacher, the rabbi, would stand up in front of all of these five-year-olds. He would take honey and he would pour it on every single one of their slates where they would write and copy and learn to write. He would take honey and he would pour it all over and at once he would say, okay, I want you to go ahead and lick your slate. And he would say, may the words of scripture be as sweet to your tongue." as honey may it be the most exquisite incredible tasting substance this book that you've ever experienced and so starting at age five they would start with genesis and then exodus and leviticus and numbers and deuteronomy not only would they study it but they would memorize it the whole book of the law all five books Word for word. It was unbelievable. Hours and hours and hours every single day. And you say, well, that's different. They lived in a different time frame that we did. Our kids can't operate like that. We can't operate that way. It would be impossible for us to do anything close to that, really. You know any middle school boys that don't have uh, entire movies memorized? Any adults here when Dumb and Dumber comes on, you don't know all the dialogue going on there? When Tommy Boy comes on, if you've got kids, when the movie Frozen comes on, they know all the dialogue, they know all the songs, right? But for us, it's just taken, unfortunately, a different focus. What's also fascinating about this first level of learning is they didn't teach like, uh, like we do in rote memory in our Western culture, right? Eight plus eight is 16. That's rote memory. The capital of uh, North Carolina is Raleigh. They don't do that. What they would do is they would ask a question, the teacher would ask a question, and the student, when they wanted to let the teacher know that they truly understood the answer, they wouldn't just parrot it back, they would instead ask the teacher a question. 
to show the teacher that they not only knew the answer, but they knew the deeper meaning of the answer. For example, if the teacher would say, what is 8 plus 8? They would say, teacher, what is 4 times 4? What is 32 divided by 2? What is the age that I will let my daughter begin to even think about dating? 16. That's how they would question and answer. And that was the Jewish way of learning. And that's important for us later on in scripture as we see Jesus, our rabbi, over and over when someone would ask him a question, he would ask them a question that expounds on that to show that he had an unbelievable uh, grip on the text. Fascinating. So when they got to 12 years old and when they had the entire first five books of scripture memorized, They were allowed to go to their first Passover. They were allowed to be the ones, as the male in the family at 12 years old, to offer up the lamb to be sacrificed at the first Passover. And that was saying before God, this is now a member of the Jewish society. He has memorized, he has put deep in his bones the first five books of scripture. How old was Jesus when we see him come upon the scene at a Passover? He was 12. He had finished this school of learning. And what else do we see about Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 26? Remember, his mom and dad couldn't find him. They're looking all over for him. Where is he? Oh, he's down at the temple. This was his first Passover. And what was he doing? He was sitting there with all the chief priests and with all the scribes and with all the Pharisees and with all the rabbis. And what was he doing? He was asking and answering questions. He knew fully about this book. And you may say, well, that's not really fair because if we believe Jesus is God, he wrote the book. Hello? Well, yes. But in Luke chapter 2, you see that Jesus didn't always know everything about everything. In coming a human being, he had to learn things just like everyone else. It says in Luke chapter 2, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus says to his disciples, everything that I have learned, I now pass on to you. So there's a human element where Jesus went through the system just like everyone else. Let's look at the second school of learning. Those who were 12 years old, maybe some of them didn't even make the cut then. Maybe some of them couldn't have those first five books memorized. They were free to go. All right, thank you. You're not going to be a student. You're not going to go on to the next level. You may go back to your parents. You may work a trade, even at 12. Many did that. But the best of the best went to the second level of learning, which is called Bet Midrash, which means the house of study. That was from approximately ages of 13 to 15. And they would begin not just with the first five books, but then they would go on to the prophets. Then they would go on to the history, first and second Samuel, first and second King, first and second Chronicles. And they would go on to the writings, Psalms and Proverbs and the book of Job. The Old Testament scripture is broken up into three parts. The law, the history, and the prophets, and the writings. And they would begin memorization of all of it. The entire Old Testament. Because they wanted so deeply, so badly to be a disciple of a rabbi. In that culture, that was the most elevated thing that you can do. And for many, obviously, as you can easily understand, they couldn't make it happen. And so sometimes by the age of 14 or 15 or right in the middle of it, 
they were given dismissal, very honorable dismissal, but they were told that they needed to go ply a trade. And that means go back to your hometown, go back and live with your parents, be a carpenter, be a fisherman, be a stone cutter, be a leather worker, whatever it was that your mom or dad does, go ply a trade. And it was said in history that was one of the worst things that a young Jewish boy could hear. Because it means you're not good enough. You don't know enough. You don't have what it takes to be a rabbi. Again, for the best of the best that made it through that, they entered into the third stage called the Beth Talmud, which means house of interpretation, to interpret. So now, not only was it the law and the prophets and the history and the writings, but they began in their incredible quest to find a rabbi and to sit under a rabbi and to learn all the different interpretations of the law. And it was an amazing, uh, incredible process, and it lasted until the age of 30. And for, again, these ones that were so intellectually capable it was that choice and a big decision to choose a rabbi to follow because there were many different rabbis there in Galilee remember it was a hotbed for religious thought, and people loved the rabbis each one of them had a different personality they were quirky they would use illustrations they would break things they would tell great stories they would light things on fire Anything that they could do to teach people about Scripture and to teach about their interpretation of the law. And so when someone would find a rabbi that they thought that they could connect with, well, I'm not really that intelligent, so I can't go for that one. And, you know, I, 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 I just don't resonate with that one. He's stern and he's sarcastic. I, I, no, but this one over here, this is a storytelling rabbi. And I love stories, so I'm going to go and I'm going I'm to see if I can follow this rabbi. And the process was such that they would go to a rabbi and that they would just stand there and they would wait and they would listen. Day after day, sometimes even months at a time, they would listen to that rabbi. And the rabbi knew what he was there for. And so eventually the rabbi would say, son, may I help you? And he would say, rabbi, you're a great man of God. May I follow you. May I be your disciple. The Hebrew word is Talmud. Talmudim was the group of disciples in the plural. And the rabbi, they were very gracious men from everything we could find. But he would say, I've got to figure out if you're good enough to be my disciple. So he would quiz them. He would say, okay, young man, start quoting Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form or void. Darkness was over the face of the water. Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. Uh, okay, maybe that's kind of right, but that's about three or four verses in. That's about all I got. Genesis 2.24, I know that one. Genesis 50.20, I know that one. In between, I could patch some things together, but no. I want to know word for word, start quoting it. That would be the equivalent of second grade. They should be able to do that pretty easily. Okay, that was good. Start quoting numbers. That's about sixth grade. A little bit more difficult. If he could do that, the rabbi would say, okay. There are 93 mentions of the phrase son of man from the book of Ezekiel. What are they? What did each one mean? Go. Unbelievably difficult, but that rabbi wanted to know, does this student have what it takes 
to be my disciple? Are they qualified enough? Do they know enough? Are they intelligent enough? And only the best of the best of the best would be given the permission, yes, you can be my Talmudim. You can join my disciples. And it was at that point that they would follow them around everywhere. They didn't want to just know what the rabbi knows. They'd spent years filling with information. They wanted to do what the rabbi did. Every element of it. How badly did they want to be just like their rabbi? There became a phrase that became popular even 200 years before Jesus in the region of Galilee. And the phrase was this. It was a prayer from a great rabbi. And he said, let your house be a meeting house for the wise. And may you powder yourself in the dust of your rabbi's feet. In other words, may you be so blessed, so privileged that you are following so close after your rabbi. Every single thing he does. How he eats. If there's a blessing. If there's a prayer. An explanation. What he does when he meets his friend in the street. What he does when he's treated poorly by an enemy. What he does when he comes across another rabbi who has a different interpretation. They watched everything. And they wanted to follow so close that that phrase, the dust of the rabbi, became something that was so incredibly valuable and something that they aspired to because they wanted to be so close that they would literally have the dust from the rabbi's feet because they were right there in his every move how do you become a disciple in the eyes of the rabbi you earn it you study you know you're willing you earn it i want to compare that drastically here this morning with Jesus' method. How do you become a disciple? Jesus' method is quite simple and it's one word. It's the word he invited you. An invitation. He invited you. So you enter Jesus on the scene. There he was in Galilee. How old was he when he started his public ministry? 30. So he was up at that level that they were aspiring to. Because when you were 30, you could become a rabbi. You could become a teacher. Well, that's how old Jesus was. And Jesus began his public ministry by being baptized in the Jordan River. And immediately what he did was not wait. Instead, he went out looking and inviting people to be his Talmudim. Jesus went looking for disciples. None of the other rabbis did that. They were going to wait. They were going to make them slave away, follow around, prove that they were worthy. And Jesus, we see in Matthew chapter 4, is walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he sees a couple of young fishermen. How old were these disciples? Remember, when did they start looking for a rabbi, a leader? Around the age of 15, right? If they could do it, if they made it, and they were going to stay with that rabbi until the age of 30, 15 years of instruction, following in the dust. And so he, here we see from several different evidences that clearly at least 11 out of the 12 were teenagers, sophomores in high school, approximately. Well, how do we know that? couple ways in that beautiful account where they had to pay the temple tax according to the book of Leviticus 
There's a certain price for the temple tax, but only those over 20 years old had to pay it. And when miraculously uh, the fish was caught and, and the temple tax coin was in the fish's mouth, it was enough for two people, Jesus and Peter. We know that Peter was married. And we also know that traditionally in a Talmudim, they would have one kind of lead student, maybe somebody who's a little bit older, maybe somebody who had been following for a while and a lot of other younger ones. Peter seems to have stepped into that role. Teenagers. And so here Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, walking along the shores. Who does he see? Peter and Andrew in a boat. What are they doing? Plying their trade. They hadn't been accepted into these upper levels of schooling. They weren't worthy for that. So instead, dejected, sad, they went back and were there with their parents. And they were plying their trade as fishermen. Later on, after Jesus calls them, you've got another set of fishermen, right? James and John, they're literally with their father, it says. His name was Zebedee, in the boat, plying their trade. They weren't worthy. They were teenagers. Well, it's just going to be a life of this. That's great. But man, I wish I could be a disciple of somebody. And here Jesus comes on the scene. And if the account in Luke is correct, Jesus had already cast out demons, raised someone from the dead, His reputation had already been known in Galilee, and here he comes walking along, and they recognized him, only a few thousand people in the entire city, and here Jesus, the rabbi, says, come, follow me, I'm inviting you to follow me. And it's funny, because so often, perhaps we hear messages about this, and like, oh, it was just so difficult for them to leave everything, and to leave their parents behind, and to leave their profession, and follow after Jesus It wasn't hard for them at all. This was a dream come true. This is like somebody who's in high school and he's a basketball player, mediocre at best, and Michael Jordan comes along and says, hey, you know what, I want to personally teach you the game of basketball. I want you to come and and I will be one-on-one with you and I will teach you everything I know. Of course you're going to do that. And so just imagine what the conversations were at the dinner table that night. Here comes Zebedee, home from fishing, alone. Hey, honey, where's James and John? Well, you're not going to believe this, but the rabbi from Nazareth thinks that my boys can be like him. Our boys? Does he know our boys? They can't even fish right. What do you mean? I know, but he invited them. He, they're part of the da- Talmudim now. He believes that they can do it. Can you imagine how he was walking on clouds the next day in the city square there in Galilee with any conversation and just sharing, you know, my boys are going to be rabbis. They're following a rabbi. They were chosen by a rabbi. He believed in them. It's incredible to think for us even here this morning as we enter into this idea of discipleship and following after Jesus that it's not something we earn it doesn't matter how much information we have or how much we can ratchet up our knowledge to be somehow valuable to god jesus is the only rabbi that we see in the history of rabbis that actually went out seeking followers 
inviting followers in. He believed in them. Fast forward ahead to a scene that's very familiar to us. Jesus was up on the side of the mountain. He sent his disciples and insisted, even in the middle of the night, that they take their boat all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. One account says they were several miles out and the wind started to howl and the waves started to rise and they were scared and Jesus was there on the side of the mountain and he was looking at them and he was seeing everything that was going on and it's great because in Mark's account it says that Jesus walked down and he began to walk on the water. We've seen that before, right? But in Mark's account it says that the disciples saw him and they thought it was a ghost you got to understand, for the Jewish people, still water like lakes and ponds and certainly the Sea of Galilee were the abyss. They were the home to the underworld, all kinds of demons and crazy creatures. They didn't have goggles like we do. They didn't have scuba diving like we do where you can go down and say, oh, this is actually quite beautiful and lovely down here. It was dark and it was scary and mythology was full of spirits that would come out of these still waters. And so they thought Jesus was a ghost. And in Mark's account it says Jesus was acting as if he was going to walk right by them. I wonder what that really looked like, right? I mean, just imagine. He's like, oh, hey, how are you doing? But we know the scene. Oh, my goodness, Jesus, it's you. And Peter, again, as the lead disciple, as the lead Talmudim, says, command that I come out on the water uh, because I want to walk, command that I come to you. And he said, come. And Peter steps out. You know why? He was committed to doing absolutely everything that his rabbi did, even if it meant he was going to drown. And so he started walking on the water and it was working. And he had the faith and he's seeing Jesus feeling his smile. Isn't this incredible? Isn't this great? But then something changed. He began to doubt and he began to sink. And that loving arm of the Savior was right there to lift him back up. He said, oh, Peter, why did you doubt? And how many messages have we heard about that was Peter doubting Jesus or not having enough faith in Jesus at that moment? I don't know that that was the case. Why would he be doubting Jesus? Jesus isn't sinking. At that moment, he didn't believe in himself. He didn't believe, I've got the ability to do this. This can't be right. Something must be wrong. And I wonder how often for many of us, it's people that want to be disciples of Jesus, who want to step out on faith. We doubt God, perhaps, but I truly believe a lot of it is I can't believe that Jesus would give me the power or the strength to really do this. I can't believe that I've got the ability to do it. And that's where you get over and over in Scripture. Jesus says, hey, you didn't, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I believe in you. All the other rabbis, people went around, people chose them, people asked, people wanted to follow. No, 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 no. I sought you out. I know you, and I have invited you into something amazing and glorious, and you've got to believe that you can do it. And I'm not talking about on your own ability. I'm not talking about self-help. We're so amazing. We're so awesome. We can do anything. What I'm saying is Jesus Christ gives us the ability and the power and the authority to be like him. 
So this very same man, Peter, we know, even after experience after experience of failure, was given the ultimate test. And there he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had predicted that he would be captured and Peter wasn't paying attention. And there he was around the campfire there in the town square and accused by a little girl nonetheless of, hey, aren't you one of the Talmudim? Aren't you one of his disciples? Your accent, it's giving you away. I think that you are one of them. And Peter denied him, no, it's not me. I don't know what you're talking about. No, 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 I think I saw you. No, it's not me. I don't think you know what you're talking about. No, I'm quite sure. Beep, 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 beep. Curses and says, I don't know the man. And scripture tells us in one of the accounts that Jesus turned and looked at Peter and they locked eyes. You can imagine the horror. What member of a Talmudim ever denies that he knows his rabbi? His whole identity is lined up in the fact that I know my rabbi. I know everything about him. I want to be just like him. I want to be a mini version of him. I want myself covered in his dust. But instead, Peter denied him. Jesus was crucified. And where did Peter go? The next time he was on the scene, what was he doing? You remember? He was on the Sea of Galilee, plying his trade again. He was back fishing again. It's time to go back. It's time to pick up the nets again, try to dust these off. Hey, sorry, Dad, I'm back here. None of that rabbi stuff worked out. Jesus died. It just didn't happen. I'm back. Let's go fishing. Man, I wonder for some of us here as we think about this idea of discipleship and are we really enough and can we really do it? I've failed him so many times. I just want to go back to what's easy, what's convenient. And Jesus as a true rabbi, as the Messiah, comes up to Peter and calls him over and Peter's so overjoyed that he still even had a chance. He jumps out of the boat. He swims over. You can picture the scene. Jesus is right there at the campfire just making some breakfast. And what does he say to Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. And what does Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lamb. Think like a Jew with me for a moment. What was Jesus really saying to him in that moment? I've said as the Messiah that I'm also the good shepherd. And this is what I do. I feed sheep and I feed little lambs and I take care of people. And he's saying to Peter, you know what? You can still be like me. You still have what it takes. You can be redeemed still be part of my Talmud. And so it's with that thought in mind that we end with this one verse actually penned by that same guy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, here's the instructions. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps who's Peter writing this to all of us 
He's saying, you're called into something great. You're invited into something amazing. Jesus is looking still, even today, for Talmudim, for people who know him so well and follow him and understand him and study him and listen to him to do what he did. You are called, and I'm equipping you to be able to walk in his steps. So, man, my challenge for you here this morning is the question, how badly do you want to be like the rabbi? Is there a fire that burns in your chest that wants to know him more? When we think about this educational system and all the discipline and all the memorization and everything that went on for years and years and years, are you willing to dive into your book to understand who the rabbi is and what he did? Are you willing to spend that time with him and let him speak to you and let him teach you? This is a five-week series, and in between these five weeks, we've got four full weeks, right? Here's my challenge to you, and we're not going to make this some big challenge, like some, we, we do a lot of that. We memorize a verse once a month. We've got lots of other things going on, and they're all great. But man, if you want to know about the rabbi and know what it means to be a disciple, my challenge to you is between this week and next week, read the book of Matthew. Between week two and week three, read Mark. Three and four, read Luke. Between week four and week five, read the book of John. They're all about the rabbi, and they're all from different, amazing, incredible perspectives. But we've got to get this right and follow our rabbi. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've invited us into this relationship with you. Lord, not based on our merit, not based on our works, not based on time we put in, but Lord, you have invited us and you have called all of us for any who would respond. If anyone wishes to be my disciple, you said. So Lord, help us to understand what that looks like. And this morning, God, help us to understand this incredibly high invitation that you offer to us. We love you, Lord be pleased as we sing about you and as we sing to you. In your son's name we pray.